In the movie Father of the Bride, Steve Martin plays this role of a father who's really struggling with um, marrying his, his only daughter off. And from the moment of that engagement announcement, for him, uh, things really begin to spiral, kind of like kickstarts a midlife crisis. It's a, it's a real bad situation for him. And his stress keeps building, and, and the concern over money and things gets the best of him until one day he finally snaps. He's at a grocery store, and he's buying hot dogs for the family because apparently that's all he's willing to spend. But he realized that the packages of hot dogs come in packages of eight, and the, and the buns come in packages of ten. So it cuts to the scene, and he's pulling two buns out of each package because his line is he refuses to pay for all of these superfluous buns. He kind of lost it and, it, and it ends with him being removed from the store by force and arrested. It, he had reached his breaking point. And honestly, in the seventh chapter of Ecclesiastes, I kind of wonder if this guy's not in a similar boat. <laughs> this is a really hard word this morning. You're tracking with them, and you're like, okay, okay, what, what just happened? Um, lots of pastors and theologians, as they've preached through Ecclesiastes, make note of it seems obvious that the writer needs perhaps a hug or a snack. Um, but here I'm wondering, did, did he lose it? And so that, that's, that's the nature of our text this morning. The first verse, we'll just dive right into it, says that a good name is better than precious ointment. Odd phrase, right? A good name is better than precious ointment. I think ointment, I think neosporin. What does that have to do with your name? It feels weird. I agree, but it's odd. It's um, precious ointment would have been something that you had to have money to have. And so perhaps it's a good name is better than anything money can get. Or if it's really perfume or cologne, you could paraphrase this verse. If people cringe at the sound of your name, it doesn't matter if you smell good. I mean, I agree. It's, it's kind of a weird connection. Like I think the junior high boys version of that would be there's no amount of Axe body spray <laughs> that can cover the multitude of sins if people hear your name and cringe because of how you're living. So I want to keep reading and figure out does it get clearer. And the next verse says, the day of death is better than the day of life. He kind of loses me there. The day of death is better than the day of life. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard saying. And we want to honor you by understanding your word. We always want sermons for the main point of a sermon to be the main point of the text. My fear this morning is that this is such a heavy word that if we don't get it, it'll overwhelm us and it'll perplex us to a point that's not healthy. So Lord, as a congregation, we humbly submit to your word because we desire to know you through it. Please teach us. Please empower us by the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The day of death is better than the day of birth. The question we have to ask this morning and answer is, is he saying, that the day a person dies is better than the day when a person is born. Is that what we're dealing with here? The first time I read through this, I didn't think, yeah, right on. In fact, I thought it was off. That phrase, as it stands alone, 
to me, actually sounds very cruel. When people gather to consider a loved one that they've lost for a funeral or something like that, this sounds cruel because how could it possibly be that upon the loss of a loved one, it's good for someone to hear that, you know, it's better today than the day when, you, when my loved one was, was born. It feels even more cruel when you consider that there are some funerals where there are both a mother and a father sitting there present. They were present for the day of birth and they were present for the day of death. I once preached a funeral for a woman who had seven adult children. Six of them were believing in Jesus and they were in attendance of a funeral for the seventh who had been struck by a car and killed. And the seventh was an unbelieving atheist. And I have this mother that I'm sitting with. As a pastor, in that moment, can I say to her the day of death is better than the day of life? I have multiple friends, some in this room, who've lost a child to childhood cancer, to an unexpected tragedy. Maybe you had a pregnancy where you were anticipating a child, but it ended in loss. Is that, do we need to hear in that moment that the, the day of death is better than the day of life? This is perplexing. You know, when he says, you know, that life is vanity, that, you know, as you're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, it talks about vapor, and this is a vapor moment for me. It's like, man, I was tracking with you, and I'm trying to grasp what you're getting at, and it's just like smoke. It's going through my fingers. It is really, really perplexing. When I find myself perplexed by Scripture, I find it best to humbly keep reading. So let's consider the next verses. Verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. When we put all that together, one of the things that we're seeing, one of the things that kind of surfaces, is death teaches us more about life than birth can. Death teaches us more about life than birth is able to teach us about life. This kind of feels like a funeral, huh? I mean, I really do. I think it's best for us this morning to try to consider what we're talking about here and wrap our heads around these verses I think it's good to consider what it feels like when you're at a funeral. Imagine if you came in this morning and you walked in for corporate worship and there was a coffin at the foot of the stage. Would it change the vibe of the room? Yes, absolutely. The day of death, the house of mourning, they represent a funeral. That moment when you gather, they represent a memorial. When when you're considering one that you've lost, it's those times that we stop the rest of life to gather and lay a loved one to rest. And if I asked you this morning, hey, would you have a, you have a choice, would you rather go to a funeral or like a party with some good food, what would you say? I, I think most of us would say, well, if I have a choice, I'd probably choose the party. 
This verse is saying that if you want wisdom, choose the funeral. So if this was a funeral, and we were gathering for something like that, if it was a funeral in light of these verses, I would point to the casket, and I would say, this is the end of all mankind. Death. Our days are numbered. And if this is the, all, the end of all mankind, and we had a loved one in a casket, I would point to you and I'd say, the living will lay this to heart, that this is the end of all mankind. The living will lay it to heart. We are supposed to spend time with it. You cannot lay something to heart quickly. It's a funeral. Get in, get out. This is a drag. No, no, no. We enter into the house of mourning and we lay something to heart and it is a process. You're supposed to linger at the funeral home. You're supposed to take your time at the graveside. You're supposed to not rush through mourning the loss of a loved one. That's why God calls us to be the kind of people who weep with those who weep. Because if they're weeping, we're going to stop down and we're going to weep with them because their loss is our loss. That's what it means to be a community. That's what it means to be a church. We help each other to not rush through the moments of loss and the moments of death. You're supposed to linger because in the lingering and in the mourning, there's a lot that we can actually learn about life. In fact, these verses seem to indicate that we lack the wisdom needed for a life that produces gladness of heart if we don't do this. Because everyone's going to have those moments where you, you, you see that someone passed. There, there's a time for a funeral. Where there's a loss. Something tragic has happened. They always interrupt our lives. So this is explaining how this moment will actually teach you more about life than even if you go and hang out in a, in a maternity ward at a hospital where it's full of hope and expectation. So death is a better teacher than birth is a better teacher Death does more for us, and death teaches us that we're not in control. All the control freaks in the room just cringed a little bit. Death teaches us that we're not in control. If you are in denial of death, if you're the kind of person who receives an invitation to a funeral and figures out any way that you could possibly accidentally miss it, perhaps you have believed the myth of control, Perhaps you believe the myth of safety because death teaches us that we're not in control. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans that are in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We set our schedules. We make our budgets. We invest wisely, we try to avoid pitfalls, we have a plan, we have a backup plan, and for the most neurotic among us, we have a backup, backup plan. And the idea of death just gets in the way of all of it. The idea of death feels like an unwanted distraction, but it certainly levels us. For many of us, what happens is we don't want to deal with reality as reality is, and so we escape 
in ways. It's escapism that a lot, that's the path that a lot of people choose. Rather than going to this house of mourning, a lot of people choose escapism. And the next set of scriptures outlines five ways that we escape from this reality that we're supposed to reckon with this morning. And the first way, well, the, the first reality is that denying the reality of death leads to escapism. Or perhaps you are in the process of trying to go through escapism and escape because you don't want to deal with the realities of life and death. And the first way that they mention we do that is through mirth. Mirth. That's not a, a word we use a lot of times. Those who don't want to go to the house of mourning go to the house of mirth. That's why it says there's wisdom when you go to the house of mourning rather than the house of mirth. It means that there's a time where people have a choice to go to one or the other and they choose mirth. Why? Mirth is amusement, especially expressed in laughter. Amusement, especially expressed, those are hard to say back to back, and laughter. Think of like just dinner parties. Just a scene where everybody's just, just laughing. Think about the club scene. You don't go to the club to talk about your last will and testament. You don't go to the club to talk about your taxes or things that are hard or things that are unknown. You go there to escape. And when you see the scene, when you zoom in on the scene, what you see is just laughter. It's just laughter, and then usually that's fueled by drinks. So there's more drinks and there's more laughter, and it's lighthearted. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, church people don't do that, some of you do. One glass of wine turns into ten. And we try to escape the realities of our life through mirth. The problem is, if that's what you're going after, you get a taste of that where you're like, man, I really like the lightheartedness of not having to deal with real things. But the problem is you can't just hold on to that naturally, and so you begin to find other ways to hold on to, to mirth. And usually it looks like more frequent gatherings like that, or excessive drinking, or substance abuse, because you want to do anything you can to hold on to that feeling that I don't actually have to deal with reality, because reality freaks me out so much. Death says that this is foolishness. Death teaches us that it is wise to be soberly in touch with reality. So some try to escape through mirth. The next one mentioned is that some try to escape the realities of life through money. Verse 7 talks about bribes and extortion. These are the ones who try to escape reality through money. They try to control people with money. They try to control circumstances with money. They try to pad their lives so that they don't have the problems that maybe other people have who have less money and they put their hope in the money. Money's not a bad thing. It's, it's the, the love of money that produces many kinds of, of evils and, and pains. Anything you make into an idol requires a sacrifice. So if you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to put my trust in this thing, then it's going to require something of you. And when it comes to money, Scripture says, many have pierced themselves with many pangs. They've, they've, they've inflicted wounds on themselves because that's the kind of sacrifice that comes with something, being, something like money being your God. Death teaches us that the love of money leads to many self-inflicted wounds that you will regret on your deathbed. 
I've sat with many people over the years at their deathbed, and never have I heard anyone say, you know what, I wish I would have been more, more, uh, more wealthy. Usually they don't care about the things that maybe owned them at one point. They're usually thinking about people and reality. The third one is impatience. Escapism through impatience. Verse 8 says that the end of a thing is better than its beginning, implying see it through. Don't become impatient and pull the ripcord. See the thing through. The end of a thing is better than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Some try to escape reality by acting as if they shouldn't have to put up with anything in their lives that's an inconvenience. Let me say that again. Some try to escape reality by acting like anything that is an inconvenience must be wrong because they didn't choose that kind of life. Their pride leads them to being impatient with their spouse, with their children, with their friends, with their coworkers. If something doesn't go their way, gloves are off. And they use impatience as a way to escape what's really going on. They act like they got, got a raw deal. Death tells us that this is foolishness, foolishness because death teaches us that patience is a virtue because life is a blessing even when things don't go your way. I think we're com- compelled here to stop acting like we're supposed to have one of those lives where you don't have to ever do something you don't want to do. Stop acting like you have one of those lives where you're never supposed to do something that you don't enjoy because I don't know if any of us, if we said, if we hear that the Lord, through the writer of Ecclesiastes, saying, take your time at the house of mourning. Go and linger at the graveside. I don't know if anybody, man, that's a great, I'm glad I to hear that because I really enjoy that. I enjoy going and, and considering the, the, the futility of our lives and the shortness of our lives and the brevity of the borrowed breath that we've been given. You will be called to do things you don't enjoy because God loves you. Because that's his best for you. But if we're impatient, we won't, we won't take him up on the offer. We won't see it through. The next is escapism through anger. See, the impatience really will lead to anger pretty easily. On the impatience front, see, we used to, I think there was like five, six, maybe seven vacations in a row. I made my plans, I have my schedule, I know the route we're taking, I know where we're stopping for lunch, we got to leave for this time, and like f- f- at least five times in a row, one of my kids just decides to puke right when we get in the car. Like, it didn't happen once, it didn't happen twice, it was like five, six, maybe seven times. I get so impatient, I'm like, I had a plan, and you're ruining it, as if they did it voluntarily. And there's this impatience where it's like, then I got anxious because, well, we've got a vacation coming up and I wonder who, who, which one of these freeloaders is going to ruin it, right? <laughs> As if it's voluntary. And so it's like, well, what is the Lord showing me in that? Well, I think I was escaping the reality of that by, I'm impatient, so somehow I can control the circumstance by being impatient. But the problem is when you give way to impatience, what ultimately happens is you become the kind of person who escapes reality through anger. Verse 9 exhorts us to not be quick to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. It's not, just be careful with the anger, 
It's no, when you become the kind of person who defaults to anger, who something doesn't go your way, and you're just gonna, you're just gonna let everybody have it. That's because you've got that thing lodged in your heart and it's out of the overflow of the heart that you speak words. And, the, and God's, God's standard for our words is let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. And angry people don't do that because it's lodged in their heart. Maybe you've met a person who is perpetually angry. They act as though life has dealt them an unfair hand. They constantly tear down the people in their lives that they're called to love. And they tear them down because of their appetite for control. Because anger lodged in their hearts. Death tells us that this too is foolishness. Death teaches us that life is better lived in kindness and patience. Again, never have I sat with a person on their deathbed who said, you know, I wish I would have been a little bit more angry. There's no wisdom in that. The fifth element of escapism that Ecclesiastes leads us into surprised me, and it's a tricky one, nostalgia. Escapism through nostalgia. Verse 10 really directly says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not wisdom that you ask this. It's a nice way of saying that's stupid. Nostalgia. This, this creeps in, and I, I, I've never thought of it before preparing the sermon, as nostalgia being a way of escaping reality, but it really makes a lot of sense when, when you consider it for a moment. These are good old days. This is a person who longs for the way it used to be. And it seems like this becomes more prevalent as time marches on because there's more of those good old days behind us. These are the back when I was a kid kind of statements, right? But this is really, this creeps in and it, it's small at first. It could be something simple like, man, I miss the good old days when my knees didn't hurt when I did things like walk. Or I miss the good old days where I'd wake up in the morning and I'd brush both my teeth and my hair. Thank you. Or I miss the good old days where so-and-so was in office. Or I miss the good old days when interest rates were like 2 or 3%. It just seems like it was yesterday. Now it's an 8.5% prime. Or I miss the good old days when you could build a church building for less than $300 a square foot. It's personal to me right now. Or just these, we just have this good old day. It's like this view. Like imagine if you complained every single day. And you get like down here to this day. And you're like, man, this day's terrible. Those days, that was living. It's like, yeah, but you complained perhaps every one of those days. But here's the thing. Hindsight's not 2020. We have what's called cognitive bias. We look back on things and we remember them the way that we want to remember them. We remember those good feelings. That's usually a feeling that you're tying into. C.S. Lewis talks about this and he says, that's why, that's why nostalgia is always bittersweet. Because you see something that made you feel a certain way and you want to replicate that feeling. But the reality is... That was not the way it was. There were lots of other factors that you're just not remembering. 
the reason that this is, this is a really scary one is when you start going down that nostalgia road, like, man, you know what, you know what was awesome? When we used to have whatever, usually the person you're talking to is like, you know what? You're right. And then boom, 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 boom. And you would think by the end of the conversation, the worst time to live is that moment that you're in. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. Nostalgia can corrupt. Why? The love of many will grow cold until the point that Jesus comes back. Lawlessness will increase until Jesus comes back. And if that's all you focus on, you miss the part about Jesus is coming back. Your best days aren't that way, they're this way. And so what happens is in that nostalgia, it becomes this really confusing but wicked form of idolatry where you're essentially saying, Jesus used to be good, but not now. Our God is good, period. He's never loved you with a love that could be improved upon. He's not like us in that way. Some days I'm a good husband, some days I'm a big fat jerk who's impatient, and the next day I'm somewhere in between. God's not capricious. He's not got these ups and downs where you're wondering who you're going to get. He's God. There is no changing in him. So when we go down this nostalgia road, I really wish it's the way it used to be. Your God is good. He is with you and he is present. So what death does is it says that this is foolishness. Why were the former days better than these? Death teaches us that you can desire for things to be better, yet still be completely out of touch with reality. Because Jesus is part of your reality. Stop idolizing the past. I think that's what we're learning here. Stop idolizing the past. I want to be careful. Philippians says, anything that is lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, you think about these things. So those are things you're thinking back on because you're supposed to. Psalm 9 says, as an act of wholehearted worship, you recount the deeds of the Lord. So you do look back and you see the deeds of the Lord. But if you do that in a way that forgets that God is the same today, yesterday, forever, you cause confusion and you just plunge yourself into heartache because you're actually not more in touch with reality. We think that nostalgia and complaining and impatience and anger, we think they get us more in touch with reality, but all you're doing is avoiding reality because in reality, your God's very good to you every moment of every day. He's never done anything that was bad for you, only ultimately good. So all these things that we just went through are foolish. Death pushes us into reality. And in doing so, pushes us into wisdom. It'd be nice to put a bow on it, right? Like, okay, so we spend time with death because it pushes us into reality, and in reality we learn wisdom. I like that. But then the writer of Ecclesiastes every time just throws you a curveball and says, oh, vapor. He leads us to the last point, which is true wisdom is learning to live with the limitations of wisdom itself. So, death pushes us into reality, and reality pushes us into wisdom, and true wisdom is never enough. It's not enough. Like, we're, we're, we're hoping through the book of Ecclesiastes that we encourage you, wisdom is really good. But guess what? At the end of the day, it doesn't deliver. Why? Verse 7 says this. 
Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. So you can have a wise dude or dudette, wise, and oppression from circumstances, oppression from evil, oppression from someone just trying to wear him down, it can drive him into madness. The wisdom couldn't prevent the madness. It goes on to say, a bribe corrupts the heart. You can have a wise person who's moving wisely and they are bribed and the, that, that desire for, for the money and, the, and maybe, the, maybe the influence that comes from the bribe, it, it, it makes them fall. And so the falling that happens there wasn't prevented by that wisdom because wisdom at the end of that day, it didn't deliver. It says in verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? When it says crooked, this is not a sinful thing. God makes things crooked because he loves you. You can turn on the news any day and say, there's a lot of things going on in the world that are crooked. A lot of it is the result of the sinfulness of humanity. But at the, at the end of the day, there are certain things that just happen and people experience loss, perhaps the death of a loved one. And if you go to them with the small things, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and say, you know, when he closes a door, he opens a window, they are, they're, that's not going to be helpful for them. There are things that, I, that's hard, crooked, perplexing. I don't I don't have the ability to just put a bow on it and explain how that's actually a really good thing. Ultimately, it's God who is good. Verse 14 says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. These verses aren't against joy. It says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. He's just as good on the day where you're feeling the prosperity as he is in the day that you are drowning in adversity, potentially. So that man may not find out that anything that will be after him. So at the end of this, God made you so that you will want to know everything from the beginning to the end. And God made you so that you can't know everything from the beginning to the end. And as you lean into wisdom, one of the things you find that wisdom lacks is the ability for you to know anything that comes after you die. True wisdom is learning to live with the limitations of wisdom itself. Wisdom can be corrupted. Wisdom cannot change everything. Wisdom cannot predict the future. Wisdom cannot change the future. We pray for wisdom, but it was never God's plan to give us wisdom so that we no longer need him. Do we sometimes pray for wisdom? God, give me wisdom so my finances can be such a way that I don't actually have to depend on you for my provision. God, give me wisdom so that I can schedule my schedule, my day, so that I don't ever have the stress of the schedule. So that I don't have to depend on you for when I'm stressed. That's like giving your child a gift on Christmas, like a big teddy bear, and your child taking the gift and going over here and saying, hi, teddy bear, now you're my dad. Like, that makes no sense. It's, it's a gift, and it can be a good thing, but it was never meant to replace the one who gave the gift. Wisdom does not replace our need for God. We need God. Even if you have all the wisdom in the world, Solomon, Koheleth, whoever wrote this book, all the wisdom in the world, but they still are nothing without God, the one who can give real wisdom. The one who can sustain you when wisdom fails. 
the one who says do this, but even the wisdom, maybe when you apply it, it doesn't achieve the outcome you want because God has a different plan and he's a good God and there's no way that we create a system where we don't need him. Let me explain with an example. Ephesians 6.12 says, and this is a verse that I've come back to a lot in the last few years. It just kind of comes up regularly. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I am burdened that evil is really well organized. It's not a pleasant thought to consider how well organized evil is. But when you see things like authorities, present darkness, cosmic powers, spiritual forces, that means that we have institutionalized evil in our world. It is really, really well organized. We may want to escape from those thoughts because it freaks us out a little bit, but evil's more well organized than you'll ever know. The reason that burdens me is that if evil is well organized, it burdens me when sometimes the local church isn't. The bride of Christ, unfortunately, is sometimes known for how they hurt one another. The bride of Christ is sometimes known for new churches coming through division instead of multiplication. So it drives me to want to exercise wisdom in the church. It wants me It drives me to want to do whatever I can to help promote good order in the church. It drives me to want to have good stewardship with the resources of the church so that we're well organized like an army of people who are regularly pushing back darkness and through the power of Christ bringing people out of darkness and into light. We can't just hope that randomly happens. We have work to do and we have to be in good order. But here's where wisdom doesn't do all of it. If evil is so well organized, the way that we overcome evil isn't with the wisdom of being better organized than evil. That's ridiculous. We need God, period. There's no way, it says to put on the armor of God, to to walk in the ways of God, to speak the words of God. It's not just that you're wiser. Wisdom has limitations. And if we're going to do what God calls us to do, we need God, period. At the end of the day, what does that leave us with? Fear God and keep his commandments. Don't give way to the fear of death. Don't try to escape reality. Allow death to lead you into wisdom and allow wisdom to teach you its own limitations. Fear God and keep his commandments. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Your created purpose is to glorify God, and by the power of God, we can glorify him in both life and death. He's not cruel to us with these verses. There's no cruelty in him. If you have experienced loss this morning, these verses also remind us that he is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He never leaves or forsakes us. And as we really lean into the reality of death, we know that it's there because it's the wage that we're owed for our sin. For the wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and fall short of perfection. 
Death is there because we've wronged a holy God. We deserve his wrath. The wrath of God is poured out on unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. And we suppress truth is to suppress reality. So if you wonder where does God's white hot anger go, it's toward that unrighteousness. And we are all unrighteous. But by faith, we receive the gift of Christ. And instead of God's wrath being poured out on us, he pours it out on the perfect, beloved, spotless son the only one who actually doesn't deserve to taste death, tastes it for us. This is what we are reminded of each week when we take the supper. And this week it's real simple. It comes out of 1 Corinthians 15. That's how we'll close our time this morning. O death, where is your victory? As you work with these weird plastic chalices, don't be distracted. We have have the body of Christ, we have the blood of Christ. He was poured out for our transgressions. And as we linger in the morning, we sit with that reality of death, as we go into the house of mourning because we want to seek wisdom but not because we don't need, need God, what we consider as we take the supper this morning is this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and eat. Take and drink. Lord, as we continue in worship, I have no idea of the heartache that is in this room right now, but I know you're a good God. I know within our church, within people listening, it, it, it is, there's a lot of loss and a lot of death and a lot of unexpected calamity. My hope for us this morning as we're gathered is that we would be able to worship wholeheartedly because we know you're good, that we would give wholeheartedly because you give so much to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a people to, to think about what we've heard from your word so that we can have the understanding that comes from thinking about it and that the Holy Spirit would help us with that. Thank you for being a good father to us who loves us in ways that are sometimes perplexing and confusing, but always perfect. We humble ourselves before you and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.